Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy, and today we're talking to Maggie Quinlan and Bethany Johnson. Dr. Margaret Quinlan is a professor of communication at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She explores how communication creates, resists, and transforms knowledges about our bodies. Bethany Johnson is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She studies how science, medical technology, and public health discourse are framed and reproduced by those with power. They are the co authors of the book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise. This book investigates the history of mothering advice in the media from the 19th century to today and the processes by which mothering has been defined. Welcome, Bethany and Maggie. Thanks for having us. This is such an honor. Thank you. So perfection in motherhood, what I learned from reading your book to my not surprise, is that perfection in motherhood is a very, very old dictate. Take us back to where the history of mothering advice sort of began. Well, I'll get us started as the historian in the group. (laughs) So something that Maggie and I have talked about for a long time is that the expectations for motherhood have changed sort of broadly. Like today, you don't expect your children to know how to guide a plow right? We're not an agricultural society anymore. But the expectation that you will raise a certain kind of citizen is still in place. And while that can sound like a good thing, the particulars of that have changed over time and they've gotten more and more intense and more and more particular. So now it's about what kind of education your child gets, how much screen time they have, what kinds of foods they eat or do not eat, how they sleep, where they sleep. There's all of these different questions. Whereas before, the social project was more about getting people who could do the kinds of work that were valued in the society and to participate in certain ways. Certainly, if you're a woman, you weren't participating through voting for most of American history. But the particulars have gotten much more intense over time, wouldn't you say, Maggie? Yes. And I were able to really dig into a lot of historical archives and kind of see where some of these messages began and how they've either shifted or not shifted 
throughout history and just to have access to some of the messages that women were told in the late 1800s, early 1900s was particularly fascinating to me. Some of their struggles were very similar to mine and a lot of the questions that they had really resonated with me. I have two children. I don't really share this too openly, but I really, really wanted to have a boy first. There are a lot of gender issues there. We could unpack it some other time, but... (laughs) It's a side podcast. (laughs) Different episode. So it was interesting when Bethany and I were in the Duke archives at the Duke Library to see that doctors were giving women advice. Then Bethany and I were able to talk to fertility doctors who debunked all of the messages about things that you can eat or not eat in order to conceive a boy. There's people, they've made millions of dollars on selling women advice on how to conceive a boy or a girl that have all been debunked by fertility doctors. Your book makes the point that there's actually some sexist assumptions involved in these ideas because most of them were predicated on the idea that male sperm would swim more quickly than female sperm, being more virile because they were male sperm. I mean, it makes no sense. Oh, shocker. Right. That's also predicated on the assumption that there's male sperm. <laughs> or female sperm. That's not what's happening. It's not a thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Maggie and I were kind of cracking up reading this stuff. People were giving me advice currently today on Facebook that we were reading in this 1927 file in Duke. So those were the moments that really, really surprised us. One of the really frustrating things about being pregnant is being told what you can and can't eat. And there's so many things that you can't eat. But those things have changed over time, depending on what the culture thinks is healthy at any given moment. So they used to to tell you like how much coffee to drink. They used to prescribe certain kinds of tea and coffee to help settle your stomach early in the morning, but they didn't want you to use too much pepper because they thought that that would make your baby angry and like a mean person if you had too much spicy food. (laughs) Explains a lot. I mean, I can see it. I can see how they got there. And also, being of Irish descent, there used to be posters for Guinness beer. I mean, Guinness was prescribed for pregnant women. For lactating women. My grandmother told me. Yeah, because it's high in vitamin K. Yeah, that's why they did it. They wanted people to get the vitamin K because some of the other ways you would get it would have been, you know, too expensive because it would have been in seafood and other things that weren't available to the working class population. So they didn't know about alcohol as an issue. You're like, you guys are so close. The vitamin K. Yeah, we're on the same page about that. The rest of it is more complicated. And what about the quart of milk a day that women were advised to be drinking in the 1960s? Your book talks about milk soup as advice that women were getting. Yeah, gross. I mean, I just can't imagine drinking, like eating milk soup. They were worried about the calcium, but they were also thinking about how people could get fat and protein. There's also some intersection there with diet culture where it's like a good fatter protein versus like cake or something. So they didn't want women eating foods that they considered, you know, quote unquote fattening, but you do have to have a substantial amount of complex fat to make a human because brains are made out of it. Also in the 1960s, that's after the farm bills passed and there's huge funding for dairy farmers. So doctors start leaning more heavily on dairy because the pricing structure is changing. This is such an interesting topic for people to dive into if you're a deep diver in general, like how subsidies control what we eat in general, like the monologue from um, The Devil Wears Prada. Like, you don't even understand why you know what you like. Yeah. What you like 
came from a decision that was made months and months ago about who was going to get what farm subsidies. Yep, exactly. And that that's, you know, Maggie, I think you would agree. That's sort of what we found with every question we had in this book. We were like, well, this is interesting. Let's see. And then we would fall into a hole for four months trying to actually get to the bottom because it was always touching on a lot of things that we didn't expect. So we can look back and say like, oh, crazy people in the 60s thought this and crazy people even before then thought this even crazier thing. How does this inform the way that we're parenting in 2021? I mean, if you're an Instagram user, how you're eating when you're pregnant and how you feed your children defines whether or not you're a good or bad parent. (laughs) Correct. It does. You know, it doesn't. I don't think it actually does. The food people actually have access to, depending on where you live, is not really in the control of individuals. But if you were to only be a person who existed on social media, you would understand that you have to perform parenting in that way. Like my child ate something green, take a picture of it, post it so people know that I'm a good parent. And one thing that we kept coming back to was what the ideal mother looks like. It happens to be somebody who's white, middle to upper class, heterosexual, married, cisgendered, able-bodied. And Bethany and I tend to check a lot of those boxes, but yet there are so many times that we felt that we weren't even measuring up. And so if we're having this much difficulty being this ideal mother, we wanted to hear from voices of people that don't fit into that. And where are they on social media today? Where are they in the historical records? And we really challenged our own assumptions and our own motherhood practices as a result of this research. Well, I think it's true that like yesterday's musts are today's nevers, right? That the very things that you were told you had to do seem preposterous now. Like my grandmother put whiskey on my gums when I was teething so that I would be in less pain and I'd sleep through the night, you know, and that is something they probably would not recommend now. So do you think that women are historically thrown off center? Like our problems with motherhood, the ways in which we are being led off course by well-meaning but misguided advice? We just have so much more access to all of these voices. So I could post a question looking for medical advice for one of my children on social media. And within three minutes, I could hear from a lactation consultant, a mother of six, somebody who sells Shakeology, a pediatrician, somebody who's really into natural medicine or crunchy. So, you know, you can hear from all of these voices really quickly where my parents didn't have access to that at least as quickly as we do today. I want to talk more about that. When we come back, I want to hear more about how social media and the way information can be spread changes how this works for moms. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew. And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this (laughs) point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. 
into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty-calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero-gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, we're back. Another aspect of social media that's interesting in terms of how we get our information is my grandmother, who was born in the last century, talked a lot about there weren't as many literal gathering places. Like her kids had to be good and on at church. That was the time they had to be good because the rest of the week they were back away from people in their house doing their thing. And it seems to me, and I think of that all the time with the role of social media, that we're all together all the time that like we're always in this race about how our kids are performing and being judged. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about the ways that it's much more common in American society now that you don't actually stay where you grew up, you leave for college or a job, right. um, more people tend to move away from home. And so we make these social media connections because we want the people that we don't live with anymore to be able to see our kids, to have mm. some idea of this day to day, right? But what does that also do? It puts you on stage. Actually, this happened with me. My daughter was three days old and it was 60 degrees. It was sort of unseasonably cold at the time for Charlotte. And my extended family knew that we were living in Charlotte. They could also see that like I'm wearing a zip up hoodie in the picture. My daughter had a couple of layers on and a blanket and whatever. But because there was a covering over her, she was actually getting kind of hot. As a mom of three days, I was like, is she too hot? What temperature is she? You know, because (laughs) I had been in these spaces where I knew that like you're always doing it wrong and you can never know what's actually right. So I took her out and the three of us took a picture. And within 30 seconds, one of my relatives was like, why isn't she wearing a hat? (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, why did I post this? She was hot. I don't want her to get overheated. And my partner's like, whew, this is going to be how it is now. Now with people and advice. And I was like, yeah, for you, it feels different. For me, it's just advice about the thing that's now outside of my body. I was getting plenty of that when I was carrying this baby around, sir. 
you know, but it was like this moment where he finally realized like, gee, I wonder if this is what the last 10 months has been like for you. But does the social media, does that sort of collapse? Like back in the day, right? There's Dr. Spock book and that's where you get real advice, right? And then the lady down the street can tell you the baby needs a hat on and you can listen to her or not. But when it's all on social media and you can't tell who's an expert and who's a self-declared expert and who doesn't know what they're talking about, does that complicate knowing which advice to listen to? Yeah, I think it rips it totally out of context. You get those images on Instagram where it's a post, but this person has like typed out a quote and put it on like a cool background or whatever. And they often don't put the source. Well, Maggie and I were looking up where some of these myths came about what foods you could eat while you were pregnant. And people were just wholesale quoting from Dr. Kellogg, who had very particular gender ideas, race ideas, and class ideas. And they were quoting from his book that he published in eight. 1997, but they were putting it on Instagram like new nutritional advice. Ah, that's really interesting. And no one would know that except us. Yeah. So like, no, I don't think you can know what the expertise is. And I think there are people finding expertise, but they don't know where it's coming from and they don't understand the social context in which it occurred. You gave an example in the book of a Facebook post claiming that caffeine during pregnancy causes chromosomal abnormalities, which I want to say is not the case. It's false, as you thoroughly debunk in the book. But that was shared and is shared, I mean, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of times. That's become now new information that's out there that the lady down the street is going to tell you. Right. And that first emerged when we first realized what chromosomes were, which is why we thought something like coffee could have that impact. And now that we actually know a little bit about chromosomes, we know that that's wild, but the average person doesn't. I think we've seen that a lot with COVID vaccines and things like that. You know, we're looking at 20 years of research here and people are like, it's brand new. I'm like, no, no, we're doing mRNA stuff in 1984 in labs. Columbia has been looking at this since the 1970s. It's not that new. Another idea that I think has really stood the test of time is the highly strung woman and how that affects women's health care, pregnancy, mothering. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because it still echoes today. One thing that comes to mind for me is thinking about connections to hysteria. So much of the advice that we see places so much blame on the woman where how men eat and how toxins and environmental pollutants, how they influence, you know, sperm and how that's very much left out of the conversation that we kept finding that the blame would be placed on the woman, on the woman's body. Instead of having a larger, more difficult conversation, that it's a lot easier to blame the woman than it is to change policies, than it is to change how we process meat and how we take care of our environment, that we'd much rather make it an individual problem than have a larger conversation. No one has to get uncomfortable if we can make it one person's fault. Right. And that that there's an early instinct. Yeah. We've seen this with autism, right? That it was frigid mothers that caused it, that there are many problems that we initially define as like, well, it must be mentally ill mothers fall or not even mentally ill. This problem, we're not going to examine it much more because we're going to just assume that you're hysterical yeah. or icy or the problem. Hysteria and neurasthenia and some of these diagnoses that start to really explode in the 1860s, 1870s and 1880s, they really skyrocket when 
white middle-class women start to enter the colleges and universities and get degrees. Um, so we can always see in history that the particular diagnoses about the problems with women tend to parallel very closely changes in women's roles in society. We're really happy to go after people that we see on the internet. And the idea is we can and should do that because it's their job, because they're influencers. So as soon as women entered the social media marketplace and started making money talking about what they were doing in their day-to-day lives, that also allowed us to all maybe feel like, on the one hand, yes, the person's putting themselves out there. But on the other hand, we all are. And at least these people are being open about making money off of it. Do you know what I mean? So I think Maggie and I, that's been a real complex thing for us to view and to decide how we will interact with influencers. But what has really helped me sort of stop comparing myself is that I'm like, this person's doing this for a job. They're doing this to support their family. They do not always take pictures of themselves in a field of wildflowers with that hat on. This is their job. And I'm not going to compare my breakfast this morning with someone's job that they're getting paid for. That's not a good comparison. I'm thinking of Chrissy Teigen. There are influencers who have used their platform to do incredible things. She was very open about her pregnancy loss of her third child and what this was going to be like. And when people came at her like, I don't want to see these pictures, she's like, then don't look. These aren't for you. But just her bravery in sharing that, her raw emotions around it, I think probably helped a lot of people. So that's one way that actually social media can be helpful because we really, really usually historically have sort of anesthetized that sort of thing, right? Miscarriage, loss, and even healthy postpartum is not something that we want to see as a society. And so we pretend it's not a thing, right? Right. <laughs> right. We're like, no, we want you to either be very pregnant or look like you've never had a child. This is the stork brought this thing. It was nothing else we need to think about. Or like Princess Kate, right, four hours later. We don't want to know anything else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to see that skin snap back. Yeah. (laughs) I want to take a break. And when we come back, talk a little bit about how this history informs us today. More and more, you hear about the importance of electrolytes as part of staying hydrated because you need the sodium and the potassium, not just the water. And whether you're looking to hydrate during a workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing and without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. They're little packets you can just grab and take with you to mix into your water bottle on the go. My favorite flavor so far, Amy, gotta be the cherry pomegranate. Interesting. My high schooler likes the lemon lime, and she keeps a few handy in her backpack for days that she has practiced after school. These electrolytes have the sodium and the potassium that you need to go with it in the optimal ratio for daily hydration. Visit sportsresearch.com and use code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's sportsresearch, S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate electrolytes order. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So I want to ask you guys about infertility and the uh, historical advice around that, because I think it's changed and it hasn't changed. And women, even today, are still told that if they can't get pregnant, they need to make a mental adjustment. They need to try harder. They need to be less stressed. Like we would have called it hysteria in 1865, and now we call it stress. You need to work less, which, as you point out in the book, is not an option for a lot of women to take on fewer shifts at work, but that there's a sort of a mental discipline that has to occur to achieve pregnancy. And it's another way of sort of blaming the woman for her body not working. Can you talk about the history of that, how that has and has not changed? Yeah, our research actually started around infertility. We were in New York City in an archive. And Maggie, you were pregnant at the time, right? Yes, I was about six months pregnant. That's right. I remember you telling me you knew that I had been in treatment and was doing an IVF cycle at the time. Yes. So we were in New York City and we were in the hotel room and Bethany checks her voicemail and there was a message from the fertility clinic in Charlotte and it said, good morning, Bethany. I just wanted to let you know things aren't going well. Your eggs are petering out none of the eggs that we retrieve are going to survive. And then ended the call by saying, have a great day. And so Bethany just looked at me and said, you know, there's nothing that I can do. This lady just told me that, you know, I can't have biological children. So, you know, let's get to work. And so that's what we did. And I was showing, and you know, it was just a very intense time. And I was, you know, very sad for her. So by the time we got back to Charlotte, I said, I'm a communication scholar. Let's do something about this. That voicemail should never have been left on your machine. There's so many things that went wrong there. Let's do something, you know, to make it better. And so we launched a 36 person study from a qualitative study to a survey to doing a documentary all about patient provider communication during infertility. And a lot of the messages that we were seeing about, you know, if you just change your mindset, if you just think more positive, that you will, will be able to have children. Now you can take an e-course and there's a teacher or a consultant who can help you to change your mindset in order to get pregnant. And a positive mindset isn't going to open fallopian tubes. You know, it's not going to remove scar tissue. And, you know, we still get those messages that if you just smile, if you just relax, if you just go on a vacation and drink a bottle of wine, that all of this is going to work. And that messaging, is that something that you see changing, that you see getting better? Or is the message just trying to reach around the messaging to women and say, actually, this is something that's been being said forever, but we're here to tell you it's really not accurate. Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. And for the record, anyone who's infertile wishes that Maggie was their friend because when I was at my darkest point, she was like, well, let's just change things, dude. 
we spent the next five years working on it and here we are. So I couldn't be luckier in that way. But I think most women don't have that experience. And the thing that really strikes me is that for 150 years, we've been telling women that their mind is the main hurdle to them not getting pregnant. But this is how it's changed over time in the 19th century. And even at the turn of the 20th century, the type of artificial insemination they were doing at the time was successful less than 15% of the time. So you had to blame it on the woman because that was the only way you could explain your own failure as a practitioner. As time goes on, still 40% of cases are put under undetermined or like not categorized. You're just sort of infertile and they're not really sure why. But the concern now is that everyone was getting that information before. You need to be better. You need to get your mind right. But now what Maggie and I are worried about is that people that can't afford or don't have insurance coverage for something like IUI or IVF or even the, you know, tests that cost hundreds of dollars a pop, they can maybe get the money together for a $450 e-course. And for the record, Megan and I are not saying that people should avoid lessening their stress or having a healthy outlook or protecting their mental health. What we are saying is that if somebody has not even been able to access the types of care that have developed even in the last 20 years, and they are only working on their mind, but they don't know about any structural issues, they will fail at the end of that course. And they will only have themselves to blame because they signed up for a course that said if they fixed their mind, they would fix their infertility. That person might have a T-shaped uterus and they have no idea because they can't afford to go to the doctor and they pitched in for this e-course instead. It infuriates me to think of that possibility. And we know people that that's happened to. We've come across them in our research. So being told you're doing it wrong does not cause less stress. It in fact causes more. Imagine that. Exactly. So how do you propose that moms listening who have all been the subject of this, we gained too much weight during pregnancy, we couldn't get pregnancy, our, our child was, you know, slapped with a failure to thrive label for a couple of weeks, we forgot the hat at the playground that time, you know, we've been told you're doing it wrong. 700 times, probably some of them today. Is there a way for us to become wiser about this and more cautious about what advice we take in? The one thing that I've become better about as a result of this is when I'm on social media, I don't give advice that, you know, I realize I'm not a medical doctor. And so I've been more cautious about doing that. Instead, how can I use social media as a way to support other mothers. I think there's other ways that we can use social media for supportive reasons. For example, when Bethany's first baby was born and she wasn't able to produce milk right away, you know, I was able to go on social media and find breast milk donors for her and was able to bring it to her house. There has been a lot of really great stories that we wouldn't have had access to without the help of social media. The historical pieces that Maggie and I talk a lot about are there's a comfort for me in having read letters from the 1840s where women are like, I don't know. I asked the doctor. They didn't know. Why is this baby crying? Because you are part of a very rich tradition. You are not doing it worse, but you will always be told you're doing it wrong. That certainty took so much pressure off for me because I expect that message, I can walk away from it. I don't have to worry about it. I assume that someone will think I'm doing it wrong no matter what it is. 
and that's okay. What I need to figure out is what's right for me and what's right for my family. For people that feel overwhelmed by the information that you're finding on social media, please remember that lots of the quotes and the sort of beautiful artistic outlays of messages and memes are taken out of context. If it doesn't sit right with you, you can always find out more about it. And one way to do that is whatever type of health or child professionals you see in person of any stripe you know, spend some time with them. You can get into deeper conversations in person or even on a telehealth appointment in the just slightly post-COVID world than you can really get on social media. So remember on social media, you're always getting a snippet. And the best thing we can do on social media is to support each other emotionally and to not worry about telling each other how to do it right. We've been talking to Bethany Johnson and Maggie Quinlan. They are the co-authors of You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. Tell us what you're uh, researching now. My other research strain is epidemics. (laughs) You really, you really hit the bullseye. Yeah, I've been teaching. I was teaching about the history of epidemics at UNC Charlotte during the Ebola outbreak. So my timing has always (laughs) been very prescient. How about you don't teach about epidemics and we won't have any? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Maybe I should just stop. Well, I'll let you know if there's a plague outbreak. Let us know what you're studying next so we can move away. I'm doing some work on 16th century plague and the gender roles and community response. And I'm also looking at H1N1 in 1918 Philadelphia and what happened in the aftermath. One thing this has taught me and I've talked about with some of my cohort is that, you know, even if you never got COVID, you're still a survivor of a global pandemic. So what does it look like to reenter that world? And what did it look like previously? Those are the questions I'm asking now. And I'm continuing on this strain of research in some ways. Bethany and I just finished a chapter about Amy Schumer and how she disclosed that she was going through IVF and asking for medical advice on Instagram. And the advice that she got was very similar to what we've been talking about. So that was a fun chapter. And I'm also doing some research about fat shame during pregnancy and postpartum from medical doctors, family and friends and partners, as well as Bethany and I are doing a study about fat shame during those stages throughout history. Oh, I can't wait to read about that. I have thoughts. Something we talked quite a bit about on the podcast. (laughs) I'll put the link to uh, the book, You're Doing It Wrong, in the show notes for this episode so you guys can check it out. Full of fascinating research about the sometimes troubling history of mothering advice. Bethany and Maggie, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. 
An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks.